source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. Let us prepare hearts and minds for the preaching of the Word of God by reading from the book of James, chapter number 4, verses 1 through 12. James, chapter number 4. Verses 1 through 12, as we prepare for the preaching of God's Word. If you have the Pew Bible, it's found on page 1012. 1012 in the blue Pew Bible. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy to God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's once again seek our great God in prayer. Lord, we thank you that your purpose uh, from before the world is to conform us to the likeness of Jesus. Paul tells us that you loved us beforehand and you set in course predestining that 
We should be conformed to the image of Christ in that final day. And Lord, you are working every day to bring that about in our lives. As Paul also says in 2 Corinthians that we are seeing that glory of Jesus and we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Lord, thank you that you've taken this up, that the Spirit of God himself dwells in us and that we are new creatures in him. Lord, that we live in a whole different world, a whole new creation has already come upon us because we live in a new relationship to you and a new relationship to one another and to this world. Oh, Lord, bless us that we will live out that new life. Bless us that we will be imitators of our glorious God, a God of of love. And turn us, convict us, Lord, of all the ways in which we deny you and judge your law and oppose you. Even, Even yet, Lord, there is remaining sin in us, and we pray that you would continue the good work that you've begun in us. Bless us that we can understand your word and grow by it. Thank you, Lord, that you come to do that very thing. We rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, what, what you call something is, is important. Uh, it gives a, a different feel for that thing. We're going to talk about how the, the terminology that James uses here to describe our conflicts and I was thinking about this when I saw a sign recently. Uh, I'll get to that sign, but it reminded me of, of the different ways to describe a car that is not new. Now, the old way to describe it is used, right? Used car. And that has the idea of, you know, can have the idea of it's used up, you know, it's decrepit, it's fallen apart. It's not worth much. Uh, You even use that word in ways to say, he just used her, right? She just used him, just used. Okay, so that's not very positive. So usually now you don't see used, you see what? Pre-owned, okay? That's a whole different thing. Not used, pre-owned indicates management, right? It indicates oversight, wisdom, promoting the good of this car. This car has been cared for. Uh, the, the oil has been changed. It's owned. He owned it and managed it. Uh, he provided all the service for it. Well, the sign I saw was even better. Not used, not pre-owned, pre-loved. Okay? <laughs> pre-loved. Oh, yeah. Now you're really getting into it, huh? This car, obviously this guy polished it every day. He was, he was flipping off little specks uh, on it. Every night before he went to bed, he would look in the garage, you know, just to make sure it was okay. And then he would go to bed. You know, he's just loved, he had a passion for this car. You know this car was taken care of. It was pre-loved, not used, okay? So here in this passage... It, it, it's not hyperbole. It, it really is a scriptural underscoring of the nature of quarrels because he uses words 
quarrels and fights. He uses the very words of war and conflict here. The very words of war and conflict. And he uses the word murder. Now, we should be somewhat familiar with this because Jesus did the same thing, didn't he, in Matthew chapter 5. The Pharisees and others were confident that they at least weren't murderers. And Jesus says, you've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders should be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And so we realize that all of our anger and hatred and and gossip and slander and lying and deceit, everything that we do to hurt one another is all painted by one name, murder, by Jesus. And here's another uh, case in which James shows uh, probably more than anybody in the New Testament, he seems to just pull straight from the statements of Christ and, and, and apply them to our lives. And so he says, you, uh, verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. And of course, he didn't mean literal murder, but he did mean murder. It's not, he, he means that, yes, you are murdering one another. You are uh, hating one another. And what, you do, what, what you're doing tastes of the very thing of killing one another. And so, Scripture looks at our mistreatment of one another, not saying, yeah, yeah, that's going to happen, it's okay. Looks at it with shock and horror. Okay? This, this God who is perfect in His love, we, we think of His justice and His judgment as this kind of dark side of God, but it's the sheer infinite nature of His love, the sheer goodness that He has that is so offended at that which isn't good, you see. He he must be just and righteous. He must hate evil because he's so good, you see. He's so pure. It's it's like God would never, ever think to do anything like that, you know, because he is so good. And he manifests that in Jesus Christ in that even for those who are his enemies... He not only doesn't judge them, but He dies for them. Unimaginable. How in the world can you do that? That's why He would be so offended, and why He can call it murder, that we would fight among ourselves, that we would be angry toward one another and hate one another the way we do. Now, it's encouraging as well as... We will get to that he says in verse uh, 6, he gives more grace. Okay, he, He's all about grace and bringing about his love in our lives, bringing about peace within our fellowship and our society, our, 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 our society of church here. But in this passage, he, he talks first about the, the source of these conflicts. And that's why I've called the wisdom from below... It, He talked about the wisdom from above in the end of chapter 3. And he says there's the wisdom that's not from above. So we just say it's the wisdom from below. But I have in parentheses or within. Because 
as he talks about the wisdom from below, the wisdom that's not from above, he says, here's the source of that wisdom not from above. It's right there in our, our hearts. Which again is what Jesus said in Matthew 15. When his disciples weren't doing the official washing of the hands, you're supposed to cup the water in a certain way and pour it over your hands like this before you eat to be ceremonial, ceremonially clean Okay, before you eat. Otherwise, you defile yourself. And his disciples weren't doing that little you know, cleansing trick uh, that the Pharisees had invented. And they called him to task and said, your disciples aren't washing. And Jesus says, look, it's not what you take in that defiles you, that, that if you don't wash your hands a certain way, that eating this food is going to bring sin into your heart, into your life. He says, you just take food in. He says, and then it leaves your body. I mean, he got graphic with them. <laughs> That's what food's going to do. That's not going to defile you. You just eat it and it passes on. But this is what defiles you. He takes this chance to say, you don't, you're avoiding the whole real issue here, Pharisees. Here's the problem. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. The way he put it. Okay. This doesn't defile one person. Here's where the defiling is. And you've heard me say it before. We talk about get your mind out of the gutter. And the problem is, right, my mind is the gutter. My mind produces the gutter. My mind is the sewer, right? And so, and right here, I want to say as well, that though the source is within, we now have the spirit in our innermost being, as Jesus himself said in John 7, from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John gives a commentary right after that. This is in John 7, 37 through 39. And right after that, John gives the commentary. He says, he spoke of the spirit that would be given when he was glorified. So we know he's talking about the spirit there. But what's so encouraging to me, and here again, I've said said this before, but I used to think of the spirit kind of sitting on the top of the water, you know, and the real me is down here pouring out all this bad stuff. And I just wish the spirit could get down there. Well, Good news is, Jesus says, from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. The point being, I'm going to change you from the inside out. I'm going to change the deepest part of you to be different so that it's not going to be superficial change. It's going to be real change. It's going to be a change of your heart, change of your motives, a change of your desires. (laughs) You're going to be a different person. Now, there's still, this, this process is ongoing And still, and part of the process is rooting out more and more of the sin that is there in my innermost being. And that's why James points us to the inner being, because that's where real change is going to occur. And the great point about this passage is to understand your conflicts are coming from what you are. from They're coming from your own desires. And we need to make that connection. It's not just that she made me mad. He made me mad. I am that kind of person that gets mad because my desire was, was squelched in some way in this conflict. What I wanted did not come about, and therefore I went on the attack. 
When relationships begin to think that way, two people begin to think that way, then you're at least on the road to change. When each of you are thinking, what I want is causing conflict in this, in this relationship. If two people are thinking that, then they're on the road to more and more peace and more and more love to one another. Instead of, of course, the fingers always at what he's doing or what she is doing, what they did to me. And to realize, uh, each of us, that it's what's coming out of my heart, as Jesus says, and as James here says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, I don't think he's talking about here an inner conflict. You know, that some would say this, this is one interpretation, that you've got these inner conflicts of good and bad, and so it comes out in conflict. Rather, that the passions are at war within you, and this war is directed toward other people. Your passions are creating a war environment that pushes out to other people. Uh, Motier says, we are, he says, inwardly like an armed camp ready for the bugle call that will send us into battle. And and we can more or less be that way, uh, just ready, on on edge, you know, waiting for someone to mistreat me, someone not to do the right thing. Even it can be a husband or wife. And you're around some uh, couples, you're around relationships in which... He said something, and she got so mad, and you're, you're scratching your head, and you're saying, I, I didn't get the connection. Why, why, was, why was this so maddening to her? And you realize, this has been going on a long time, okay? There's been a lot of conflict under the bridge, all this water flowing under the bridge. And so she is just ready, you know, for the bugle call. If he does that, bam, or vice versa, uh, him toward her. And so we can become like this armed camp, uh, ready for this bugle call. Uh, The desires are not conflicted within, I don't think. The desires are clear. Uh, They want to get somebody else and take them out verbally. Or maybe take them out by refusing to relate to them or walking away, etc. And so Matir goes on to say, He's not examining our inner conflicts, but the wars we wage against each other. Ready at any point to declare war against anyone who stands in the way of personal gratification to which we've set our hearts. You and I need to ask that question. What is the personal gratification? What is the thing I'm wanting that is causing conflict in any relationship that I have? Where is it in my heart? You tend to think, yeah, but you don't realize it's mainly... Yeah, that's what they're saying too. It's mainly you, right? Everybody's saying this. It's mainly him. It's ma- when usually when couples come in, they're they're both saying it's mainly this one. It's mainly her. You know. And if if you and if you talk to Kay and me about our issues, we'd probably be the same way. She said, "Well, the main problems we have is Darwin." You know. Now she would be right. You know. <laughs> But I've been saying, no, the main problems we have are K. Let me, let me tell you the problems. And she said, no, no, let me tell you the problem, right? Because we both can make lists. The question is, am I making a personal list? Am I coming in and saying, look, here, here are the problems in my relationship. And they begin with me. 
I, I'm, I'm the real issue because I do this and I do this and I do this. I say this. I ignore that. Oh, yeah, and then I do, you know. Oh, we need that. We need that. We need that. We need that. Two people are doing that. Then we're beginning to recognize answering this question correctly, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? This, me, that's what causes it. It's me, it's me, it's me. So, we, we have these desires. He says, verse 2, how they work. You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. See how it works. You want something, you don't get it, so you get mad, you get angry. And then the, this process cuts us off from God as well because he brings in prayer. It, it seems kind of odd that he suddenly talks about prayer because it's all about this conflict. But you see, if your desires are, have, are, are in conflict with one another, they tend to cut you off from God because your prayers will be infected by those desires. What will you be asking God for? Lord, please fix this woman I'm living with. No, that'll be the tendency. Please give me patience to live with her. Please help me. Now, I know there's some situations where there's real abuse. So, and I understand that. Okay, so there are some, we've faced them in our congregation uh, of real abuse in relationships. I'm not downplaying that and that needs to be dealt with. Okay, but I'm talking about our kind of, run-of-the-mill, everyday conflict that we, we go through with each other and how we tend to be focused so much on what we want out of a relationship and what we're not getting in a relationship, blind to what we're not bringing to the relationship, that our prayers are not taken up with the character of God. That is, I want to grow in character in this relationship, oh Lord. I'm asking you for character. That's, that's a real prayer, see, to ask for character in this conflict. Ask that I may be able to love as you love and be humble and serve as you are humble and serve and count her or him more important than myself. Lord, to be patient as you are patient with me, to forgive as you've forgiven me. Oh, Lord, enable me to change and to pray for his glory. Oh, Lord, in the midst of this relationship, may your name be lifted up. May you be glorified. Well, we tend to just uh, want things to turn out the way we want them. We want God to fix my life, make it comfortable, make it full of pleasure, free of pressure and difficulty. I want more and more of the world. Others are standing in my way. You see, that kind of prayer or that kind of attitude is not going to even make you want to pray. You have not because you ask not. See, it's not a humble uh, desire to give myself up to God and to receive His blessings in my life. I'm on my own, focusing on myself and my needs and my desires, my future, my glory, my well-being, my concerns, my stuff, my goals, and not God. So I'm not really seeking Him in prayer. I'm just trying to get ahead in life. But then when I hit something intensely difficult, then I may turn to prayer. But then it's just to get God to fix something. That can be our life. And that kind of fits what he says here. You ask, you don't ask. Uh, you don't have anything because you don't ask. And then when you do ask, you don't receive it because you're asking wrongly to spend it on your own pleasures. See, 
<laughs> do finally ask is just to get out of something, you know, or to have something better turn out for me. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't, even then, even because I'm amazed by the passage in the Old Testament where he says, I hemmed you up with thorns so that you would return to me. I'm just amazed at the infinite humility of God to say, I, I made everything else fail so that you had nothing else but to turn to me. It's like playing second fiddle, you know? Like, I, I just made everything fall apart so that you really had nothing else to turn to but me. And so God does that. And there can be, in those instances, real brokenness, you know, and a real... But, but part of it will be admitting all that I've done and been and, and seeing myself in a new light uh, and seeing the self that has been in the middle of all the mess. But this is why he then goes on to say, you adulterous people. It's really in the feminine, you adulteresses. And it's interesting that... Uh, People copying James in, in history would add adulteresses and adulterers so that the men wouldn't be left out, you know. But the point, they were missing the point. The point is, we're the bride of Christ. We all are regarded as the bride of Christ. And so we're all adulteresses. That's why he addresses us in that way. But uh, James makes it clear, in the, uh, or the uh, ESV, to say, you adulterous people. But this is spiritual adultery for us to be at each other's throat, to be in this fight mode because we're being governed by our desires, what we want, instead of sacrificing and laying ourselves down for one another and asking how I might change and be like Christ so that I can walk in His love, then we are like the world. We're living just like the world. We've become friends with the world here, he says. And when we're adulteresses, we are thinking like the world. We have values like the world. It's pride and self-adulation and self-promotion. And therefore, we're an enemy to God because God is the humble God who gave himself for us to die uh, in Christ Jesus. Imagine if the infinite God has humbled himself, even to the point, as Paul says in Philippians 2, of the death on the cross for sinners. And then we're pridefully pushing ourselves out there. Can imagine how grievous that is to God? This God who has, you know, he didn't hold equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, look, I'm God. There's no way I'm sacrificing. I'm God. No way I'm sacrificing to the point, I'm going to stand in your place and die for your sins against me? Forget about it. But then for this God to so humble himself and then to run into our pride. Friendship with the world and its pride is enmity with God. An independence, a self-focus, pride instead of depending upon him, being helpless before him, admitting what we are and welcoming His grace and goodness and greatness to rescue us, that's being a friend with God. But refusing Him and refusing to admit what I am, this is friendship with the world. Because the world, 
rejects Jesus. The world, the light comes to the world and the world turns away from the light. The world doesn't want to embrace this light. And so when we act so contrary to God's nature, then as he says in verse 5 here, I'm sorry, verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So if you wish to be a friend of the world, if you wish to walk in this way of pride instead of sacrifice, then you are an enemy to God. See, this is not in the first place. We, we tend to take passages out of context. And so we tend to think friendship with the world is first about what movies you go to and dancing and stuff like that, right? And, and there's some questions to be asked about what movies you go to, for sure. But this is talking about conflict. Let's talk about the way the world conducts its conflict, the way the world hates one another and slanders one another and is against one another and doesn't sacrifice for one another. In doing that, becoming a friend of the world, we become an enemy to God. And so this one of infinite strength uses his strength to sacrifice himself in love for his people. He's completely focused on the good of his people, even if it means his own loss, his own humility and suffering. And so when our focus becomes self instead of others, then he greatly resists us because we're at that point, we are essentially ungodly, ungodlike. We've aligned ourselves with the spirit of the world and John tells us in 1 John 5, 19 that the whole world lies in the hands of the evil one who's called in this passage Diabolos, the devil, the slanderer. See, His very name is what he does. He's on the attack. He is in the midst of quarrel and anger and bitterness and dissension and factions. He's in the midst of this. That's why up in chapter 3, verse 15... Those things, this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are earthly and spiritual, demonic, he says. And that's why he goes on to say, resist whom? Resist the devil. Because he is all about this kind of meanness toward one another. He is against self-sacrifice and love to one another. So, malicious gossip and slander and dissension and backbiting and envy and jealousy and deceit and insolence and pride and abuse and rage and strife and quarrels and all of these things. These are words that Paul uses himself. Uh, when we are engaged in these things, then we're tending to side then with the enemy himself over against God and his people. And we become friends of the world because that's the way the world acts. That's what the world does. This verse 5 is a very difficult verse. We won't go into all the controversy around it. Some have called it the most difficult verse in the New Testament. But I know what it means. No, just kidding. Really, just kidding. Um, I think the translation, the, the problem is the word spirit can be either the subject of the sentence or it can be the object of the sentence because of the ending it has. So it could be the spirit, either our personal spirit or... It could even mean something this different. Your spirit is not yearning jealously in a good sense, but uh, he's saying the spirit of man does this evil jealousy, you see. That's how differently it could be translated. 
But I think that for reasons I won't go into that, this is a very good translation that ESV has. And the basic idea is that, uh, and, and another problem is that what follows, what's in quotations is really not found in the Old Testament. So the question is, well, where did he get this scripture? And probably the best idea is that sometimes New Testament writers uh, summarize an idea in the Old Testament. And likely here then, because he's talking about friendship with the world and being adulteresses, that he's the whole idea of God's jealousy for his people, that he jealously wants us for himself is the fundamental idea of this passage. Uh, so he said, do you think it's vain that he, the scriptures generally in every way says, I jealously covet this relationship that I have with you? Do you think that's an empty statement? That it doesn't matter? God doesn't care if you have this attitude toward him and this attitude toward the world? And then looking, seeing the problem is the source within us and how it breaks out in conflict and in in essential uh, being like the world, conforming ourselves to the world instead of conforming ourselves to God. He then gives uh, the commands, verse 7 and following. Uh, And really, verse 7 and verse 10 are like bookends. Submit yourself to God and then humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Uh, Because submit yourselves to God comes on the grace of He gives grace to the humble, then submit yourself. And then he ends with that in verse 10, humble yourself. So uh, as part of your humility, submit yourself to God. And then he ends the same way, humble yourselves uh, before the Lord. And all of this then is part of that. It's it's outlining, giving you what it means to submit uh, to God. And you think of... The Lord, he's called the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of, of glory. And we're, we're submitting ourselves to this God who is a God of love, a God who commands what in chapter 2, verse 8? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love as I love. Love one another as you love yourself. This, this is the very transcript of God's character put in the law. And it's why he can say in verses 11 and following, if you speak against a brother or judge a brother, you speak against the law. You're standing over the law and saying, I'm trashing you. I don't care what you say. You're standing over this law that you should embrace and submit to because it is the law of God who loves And the command of of the whole of the Bible, as Jesus summarized, as James is summarizing in chapter 2, is caring and loving one another. So uh, submitting yourself to God is to submit yourself to this God of love. Resist the abolos. Resist the slanderer. Resist the one who would bring this conflict in your relationship. Recognize where it's coming from. Don't be in league with him. Don't justify your conflict. Don't justify your anger. Don't justify your mistreatment of another person because of what they've done to you. No, you're in league with the enemy when you do that. It's just what he wants you to do. It's just how he wants you to act. So this is shocking, really shocking. Resist the devil (laughs) because he is what this is about. He is bringing conflict. He is seeking 
to ruin this relationship. He is especially seeking to move you away from laying your life down in love like God does and sacrificing yourself. And so draw near to God. Draw near to Him in prayer. Draw near to Him in His Word. Draw near to His people. Draw near to worship. Keep drawing near to God. I love that prayer, that we, that hymn we sing. If you've drawn me a thousand times, oh, draw me again. Keep drawing me, Lord. Keep drawing me. But isn't it remarkable that here you are to draw near to God? The responsibility is put in, in your camp as a believer. We know that it's God that must draw us, but this is directed to you. You draw near to God, believer. Draw near to Him in prayer. Don't neglect prayer. Draw near to Him in His Word. Don't neglect Word. Draw near to Him in fellowship with His people. Draw near to Him in worship. Draw near to Him and study the Bible together with others. Keep drawing near to God. And the promise is that He will draw near to you. And of course, cleansing your hands, purifying your hearts, because your hearts are the source of this desire, uh, of this conflict. Double-minded means that you're not really trusting God. You're, You're in unbelief. You're not trusting His goodness. You're not trusting His sovereignty. You're not trusting that He's put you in this situation to live out the character of Jesus. You're all about you and your protection, and you're going to hurt somebody. That's unbelief. And so... When he says laughter, of course, he's not against laughter. But it's that mocking of the will of God. The mocking of the will of God that will resist writing a relationship, resist sacrificial love. That is to laugh in the face of God who sacrifices. And that's why he says, let your laughter be turned into mourning. This attitude... That, that justifies your mistreatment of someone, that is a mocking of God, a mocking of the God who sacrificed himself for those who were his enemies. It's pretty tough stuff. And I take comfort, and I close with this, with that phrase in verse 6, that he gives more grace. He gives grace to the humble he gives grace to, we, to us who are helpless, who realize this is huge, this is gigantic, this is overwhelming. How in the world could I? You're a good candidate then to trust this great God because he gives greater grace, greater grace than your sin, greater grace than the conflict, greater grace, more grace than you can imagine, grace for any part of your life, for whatever you're facing. He gives greater grace. Increasing, overflowing grace. And he gives it simply to people who are broken, who humble themselves and say, Lord, save me. Save me from what I am. Save me from what I've been doing, what I've been saying, what I've been thinking. Oh, Lord, thank you that you will save me. And that's why that passage in John 7 to me is so precious because he says, for anyone who believes in me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. What does that mean? Anyone who helplessly trusts me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. 
There's nothing you bring to the table. There's no strength you bring. There's no capacity. There's no performance that you bring. You just bring helplessness. He who trusts helplessly in me, who trusts expectantly that I will save him from his innermost being, will flow rivers of water. And that's a whole new self that loves in a whole new way and is no longer in league with the, with the enemy. It's a good thing that we can no longer be in league with the enemy. And if you... Here's some shocking words perhaps for you, but Scripture says... There's a passage where Paul is talking to Timothy, and he says, in gentleness... Uh, Deal with those who are uh, opposing uh, false doctrine. Okay, so he, he, he says to do this with gentleness. He says, so that perhaps God will grant them repentance and they will come to their right senses, like, and, and he says, and they will escape the snare of the devil who held them captive to do his will. And, and here's the point. If you don't belong to Jesus, there's no one else to belong to except Satan. There, there is no one else. People don't belong to themselves. We're not that great. You know, we're, we're pretty low on the scale. You know, when you get angels, glorious, strong angels, and you get to relatively puny human beings, you're going to belong to something. And if you don't belong to Jesus, you must belong to the enemy. And that's why it says in Colossians, he brought us out of darkness, out of the power of Satan into the light in the kingdom of his son. How glorious that he will bring you. If you trust in Christ, he'll bring you out of the kingdom and the darkness of Satan to live under the banner of Jesus Christ, the one who sacrificed himself for sinners. Let us pray. Lord, We must have your power and your grace in Christ Jesus. And Lord, thank you that you give this grace and not to those who are mighty and strong, not to those who have it all together, but Lord, you give it to helpless people who realize their helplessness, who realize their need, who realize, I've got so far to go. I'm I'm so, I'm full of sin. I'm full of wrong. I'm full of, 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 remaining hatred and anger, bitterness, and it comes out in conflict. Oh, Lord, thank you that you continue to give greater grace so that more and more and more we leave our sins so that from our innermost being these rivers of living water can flow so that we can live out the the new sacrificial love of Jesus Christ in our lives. Bless us, Lord. Bless us with freedom in Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life.
my light. Oh, come with blissful ray. Break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?